Lord, thank you so much for uh, this time. It's just an amazing gift, Lord, that we get to gather around above ground and open up your word, that we get to have your word well translated and just study it together. And I pray that it would be more than a study. I pray that just sort of as we just sang, that this would be worship, that this would be an encounter with you together, that we would behold your beauty and your glory in old ways, in new ways, that we would meet with you and be captivated by you and what you've done for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in saving us all by yourself and offering salvation to the worst of sinners. And I uh, thank you for this group that you've gathered. I pray that if, there, if, there's any, if there are any stragglers, they, you'd bring them in the perfect time, keep them safe. And I just pray, Lord, that you would speak in power and that Jesus, you'd be glorified in the Holy Spirit. I ask that you would come for, this, for the sake of, of Jesus and for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. That's that. So, I've titled this talk, this, we are in Romans 1, 16 and 17. We'll read it in just a second. And I'm, I'm t- I've titled it, The Power of God for Salvation, God's Righteousness Revealed. The Power of God for Salvation, God's Righteousness Revealed. So we're in Romans, this is our third week. I thought, I thought the first week we could get through the first 15 chapters. No. Um, the goal next week will be to finish the chapter. So that's a big task. We won't, we won't look at every verse. We will look at both verses here because we have two. So Romans 1, 16 and 17. Um, I was thinking about the atom bomb today as I was thinking about how to start this lesson. And you know, the, at, the atomic bomb was, uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. It's an amazing discovery for so many reasons. But one of, the, one of the reasons is that something so small, you know, a subatomic particle could be split. And in being split could release such devastating power that it helped end the Second World War and it, and it killed tens of millions of people, tens of uh, thousands of people, rather. And, um, and so the idea that something so small and seemingly insignificant releases such tremendous power in a way that really so many people, most people on the planet wouldn't have imagined before um, for devastation. That, that idea, I just want to sort of hijack that idea and apply it to this, this text, which these two verses, are, Paul lays out here the key to, this is his thesis, and this is what he's going to drive forward and argue for, for the rest of, really, through chapter 11 of these two verses here. And so it's, it's and he show, he's going to show us that the gospel is God's, as we'll, as we'll see, the gospel is God's power to save in a way that it fooled the principalities, it fooled even his own followers and certainly his enemies, and it released such power, not for devastation, but for emancipation and for salvation, for the recreation of all things. And, uh, and it was a way that just upended everything and surprised everyone. And so Paul's going to begin to crack that here. And th- let's go ahead and read Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'll, I'll read it just again for the sake of, I've got the ESV and, um, and, I'm, and it, just for the sake of the recording. So Paul says this in Romans 1, verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. And, and sorry, right before this, what does he say in 15? Somebody just shout it out. This is a bit of a give and take, right? I mean, always feel free to shout out. This is a class. So what does he say in verse 15? Why does he say four? What does he just said right before this? So I'm eager to preach the gospel. He's eager, right? He's eager. He's never been to Rome. 
He loves what he's hearing about that church. It's growing by leaps and bounds. He didn't plan it. He's never been. He wants to go visit them. And he wants to preach the gospel to them, as Andrew kind of helped point out last week or the week before. He wants to go preach the gospel to Christians. We ought to be preaching the gospel to each other all the time. It's, there are ever new depths in the gospel. So he says, for that reason, because I'm eager to preach it, look, I am not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16. For it is the power, why is he not ashamed? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So more than anything else, what is he saying here? In his thesis, couple verses, where he is telling us, this is what I'm going to be unpacking, elaborating, unfurling for the next, really for the whole book, certainly for the next few chapters um, in earnest. Uh, more than anything else, the gospel shows us what about God? More than anything else. What is Paul saying here in Romans? The gospel shows us a ton of stuff about God, right? But what does he say here? What do the words say? It's the power of God. It is the power of God. That's right. It, it unleashes, as it were, God's power to save us. Not to devastate us, but to save us. And how does it do that? By revealing his righteousness. By revealing his righteousness. Okay? And the thing that blew me away, I, that pun not intended, but it works. Um, hey. Um, the thing that, if y'all could get him that, one of those sheets, that'd be great. The thing that blew me away about this some weeks or months, I guess months ago now when I was thinking about it, is that I think in today, to, for me, in our culture, in our Christian culture today, if I said, what is more than anything else, the one word that comes to mind when I say, what is the gospel? God himself sending his only and most beloved son to die on a Roman cross in the place of sinners. What does that tell you about God and his character? What does that tell you about God? He's a covenant-keeping God. That is very true. That is so true. What is, if I'm, so... What would the average Christian in the West say today, do you think? Love. Love. And is that false? Of course not. Thank God it's not. If it were false, we'd all be doomed. It shows us God's love. But the interesting thing to me is that's not the word Paul chooses here. He doesn't say in this magnum. Remember, this is his greatest work of theology, his unpacking of his comprehensive unpacking of what has God done in Christ to make sense of all space and time. And the word he chooses is what it shows us about God. He doesn't say love. He, of course it shows us the love of God, but the word he chooses is the righteousness of God is revealed. So that's really what he's going to be arguing for the next few chapters earnestly all the way through chapter three and really beyond. And I want to just dip into tonight. Um, okay, so I think we would say love almost every time. We would have other answers too. Covenant, both of those are right, but that's not what Paul says. Um, he says that, that it's the gospel, as Laura said, is God's power to save, and we'll dig into that, and that in it the righteousness of God, preeminently, more, maybe more than anything else, the righteousness of God is real. Probably not what I would have said. Definitely not what I would have said. But there's so much power there. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And we'll look at that and what that, how, that, how that speaks to God's righteousness being revealed. Um, one scholar calls these two verses the heart of the gospel. Here, as I said, is Paul's thesis for the whole book. So there's so much here. Let's, let's jump in. Um, point one, the gospel is the power of God. Again, as Laura pointed out, and as Paul says here in verse 16. And what does he say here? Uh, before saying that the gospel is the power of God, how does he start out verse 16? He's eager to preach, verse 15, and then what does he say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The power? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but 
No, you answered. That's great. Don't be sorry. He's not ashamed. That's exactly right. And that's actually a good reminder for me because they're recording to uh, repeat what y'all say, if I can, for the sake of those that are listening. But um, he says that he's eager to preach the gospel for he's not ashamed of it. And that, that just convicted me. I don't know if y'all are convicted and cut to the quick by that, but I am so often ashamed of the gospel. I'm ashamed. And that is, that is a shame. I'm ashamed to share it with folks. I want their good opinion. I think it may hurt our friendship. Um, I'm so often ashamed, but Paul, it's so refreshing and convicting to see him say here, and then he gives some really cogent reasons. I'm sorry, but could you, should you call it a shame? I mean, you might be... Embarrassed? I think I am. I think to be, to be perfectly hard on myself. Yeah. I think it's a confession. Yeah, I think it does. And, and, and that's a shame, but it's a confession. And, and, I, and one of my prayers is that in being honest about that confession, there'd be power, I'd be liberated from that, right? To, yes. to not be ashamed. Um, and so God help me. And this is a prayer as much as a lecture. Uh, but he says, I'm not ashamed and I'm eager to preach, verse 15. And so often I'm the opposite. Um, why is Paul not ashamed? Look at the text here in verse 16. Why is Paul not ashamed? What does he, what does he say? There's that connector word, right? For. For. Yep. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for... For why? Okay. So why would we be ashamed of God's almighty God who spoke the creation into being, his power to save the worst of sinners? Sinners like me. This is how, the gospel is how he has saved me. Why would I be ashamed of that? Well, it's because of my sin and because of my, the way that sin deranges me, right? And that tells me something about how screwed up I am and how much I need a savior and the power of God to save me. That I could be ashamed of the one thing that is adequate, that is sufficient to save me, and that indeed has saved me, and is saving me. That's Paul talks about, the New Testament talks about our being saved once and for all, and then our, and then our being saved. It's happened, it's finished, we're, we're already as good as glorified, because the work is done, we're encased in Christ, we'll talk more about that today, but also it's ongoing through our lives, it's working itself out, Philippians 2. Okay, so um, he's not ashamed because it's God's power to save everyone who believes. So, that word here, um, everyone loves to point this out that, that teaches this, but it's the power, the dunamis. What, is that, what word does that sound like? It's the dunamis of God for salvation. Dynamic. Dynamic. Dynamite. Dynamite, right? Those words both come from this word, but exegetical fallacy. Okay, um, get a little geeky here. A lot of teachers will say this, not to pick on them, but this is just for you as you study the Bible and, and do word studies and things and get into the Greek and the Hebrew with, your, with the free online stuff that's out there. Um, or books or whatever, um, or if you read Greek or Hebrew. So this word is dunamis, from which we get our word. Our, the English, later English word came along later, and, and it came from this Greek word dunamis, which means power. So the, the exegetical fallacy would say, okay, because, because the English word dynamite came from the Greek word, therefore we import that later English word dynamite, which is an explosive, blows rock apart, back into here and say, well, this means basically like dynamite. It doesn't. Our English word came, that came later means dynamite. It, it meant, yeah, it meant, yeah, more like dynamo. That's right, power. It literally just meant power. But we do get the word dynamite, dynamism, dynamo from, from this Greek word. So it is God's power um, to save. And what I want to focus on here, and this is right, is that what Paul is saying here, let's mine into this rock, as it were. He's saying it's the only power of God to save. There is no other power. It is, it's not a power of God to save. The gospel is the exclusive and only power of God to save. Why else would he have given his son over 
to evil men to be crucified, to have his wrath poured out on him. If there was another power for us to be saved, it is the power. And that's what we need to remind ourselves of in this pluralistic world we live in and drive people toward unabashedly, unashamedly, right? It is God's power. I'm so proud of it because in being proud of it, it shows what a sinner I am and how I didn't do anything to deserve it and you didn't either and it's free for you and it's his power he's chosen. He's architected, fooled everyone to save you. Your sin is no match for this power of God to save, right? Um, St. Anselm a thousand years ago wrote uh, Cur Deus Homo in Latin, um, why God became man. Cur Deus why did God become homo, man? Why did God become man? And he is, it's a masterful treatment of basically, uh, there's much more, but basically why did God become man? And he kind of reasons out if there were any other way for us to be saved other than God, God Almighty, coming and becoming a real man, making a way as the God-man, fully God, fully man, divesting himself of the privileges of God so he, w- so he could become what? Crucifiable, mm-hmm. rejectable, right? If he had come with all the, all the power and glory of God, we, never, we would have bowed down and hit our faces. Remaining God, but divesting himself of the privileges therein. Fully and truly man, born of a virgin, the God-man brings sinful men back to God. And, and, and Anselm talks about how if there had been any other way, and he kind of looks at the other ways, and he's like, Not, nope, 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 nope. This is the only way. It's the only power of God. To save is the perfect power of God to save. That's also what Christ says himself, right? Father, if there's any way, any other way. That's it. That's it. So an argument from silence, as it were, God was silent, and presumably if there had been another way, he wouldn't have done, done, allowed this to happen to his son. He wouldn't have architected it, orchestrated it, determined that it be so, because he loved his son. And uh, he would have answered him, oh, you're right, I didn't turn this stone over. There is this other way. Okay, let's... No, he didn't do that. His silence well, argues... On, on your dynamo... Yep, yep. Operation dynamo was the Dunkirk evacuation to save all those people. That's neat. That's a good illustration. I'm going to use that next time. You need, you need to come. You need to keep coming. Thank you. Um, I like that. Uh, so, okay, a little bit more on this. So it's... God's power to say, what does Paul say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. So, you know, eyes on the verse. It's the power of God for salvation, what? To most people, to Jews only. True first. Uh, first is true, but what, what's the phrase right before that? Everyone. everyone. I mean, we could skip over that so fast, but what? <laughs> to everyone. This is the super Jew, Paul, <laughs> who's writing this. And he's offering it to the whole world because Jesus offered himself for the whole world. And because we trace it back, we won't do it now, but we trace it back. And actually, God calling Israel to himself was actually so that they could be a light to the nations. It was, the, whole, the plan all along was to give himself to one people that that one people might be a light to the nations. And that that one people might give the world Messiah who would come and open up a wide way to anyone, anyone and everyone. Um, so Paul says this. It's, it's for everyone. It's utterly... Uh, inclusive, right? We've heard, I think I even said this maybe last time, the gospel is utterly inclusive. It's for absolutely anyone and everyone. And, and yet it's utterly prescriptive. There's only one way. There's, it's the ultimate, if you want to think about it this way, bottleneck. 
salvation, the power, the only power of God, the sufficient power of God to save only happens through one person. And who is that? It's Jesus Christ. There is no other person by whom we must be saved. He is, we can't go around him to get saved. There's no other way up the mountain. And yet his arms are open wide for a reason. Chester, G.K. Chesterton points out that the, the Easter, the sign of the Eastern, uh, many of the Eastern religions was a, was a circle, was a snake eating its tail. It's, it's closed in on itself. The, the sign of the Christian for good reason, for many reasons, is the cross. It's pointing out in all four cardinal directions, and it's God with his arms nailed open wide by choice. Can you imagine how tempting it would have been? I mean, if, I'm, if I die for everyone, the minute I'm pinned up, I'm, my choices are over. I'm just like, well, this is it. I guess I made my choice. Jesus, at every second, had to continue to choose the infinite suffering he took because he, at any instant, could have called down legions of angels and been delivered. And we, then we'd all be going to hell. At every moment, he had to resist that temptation. He chose to hang there, arms open wide, and literally invited the thief in, right? Invited the centurion in. Gives his mom to be taken care of. Thinking about other people while he's hanging there. I mean, this is the symbol. Anyone can come. Everyone can come. But you have to come through me. Who believes, right? To everyone, but you have to believe. Salvation, God's salvation to everyone who believes. There's so much emphasis on faith in this, even in these few verses, but certainly in this, in this letter where Paul's unpacking the gospel. Faith is the key that turns the ignition of God's salvation. It's the open hand, to use a different metaphor. Faith is the open hand that receives the gift of God's free and full salvation in Christ. It receives all the work of another given to you, but you have to unwrap it, and you do that by faith. And, and, and faith is a key component, as we'll see here, of, of uh, how God's righteousness is revealed to us, but not for our damnation. God could have easily revealed his righteousness and blown us all away like getting too close to the sun. The sun is no match. The sun is God just, shoot, it's an average size star. There are trillions upon trillions of them. He, poof, there's one, literally one word and then one non-translatable word. It's a, direct, it's a direct object marker in the Hebrew in Genesis 1 where all creation is mentioned that is devoted to God made the stars. It's et hakokavim. Et is not translated. It's just, hey, this is a direct object. So the word is hakokavim. That's literally the only description of God making all the host of heaven. It was easy for him. But securing our salvation required his death and going to hell in our place. Wow. That says a lot about his love and it says a lot about his holiness and his righteousness and what it took, how deranged and ruined we are in sin. Okay? All right. Um, So it's the open hand that receives the free um, gift of God in Christ. Okay, so, and now, as Stephen, I think, someone said, Jumped ahead and said, okay, to everyone who believes, but it's to the, what? what how does he finish verse 16? To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Somebody just explain that in simple terms. What does he mean by that? It's to the Jew first. What, is, what does that mean? And also, but also to the, what does he mean by Greek? First of all, the easier question. What does he mean by Greek? Also to the Greek. Is it just for Greek people, not, not Romans? He's writing to the Roman church. Or not Turks? Hmm? Yeah. So, so the, and also the Greek means any non-Jew. Okay, so let's get that. But also, but to the Jew first. And really, okay, so I'm about to explain it. What does he mean by that? They were who God made the covenant with. Chosen. Salvation has to come to us through the Jews. Okay, let's look at this. Somebody read, it's a Bible drill. First, oh, I think I got this wrong. I think it's three, Romans 3, 1 through 2. Can someone just read out 
Nice loud voice, Romans 3, 1 through 2. Paul explains this at least twice in this letter. This is Romans 11, the next one. Mm-mm. But uh, it's more than that, okay? But it's, it's the start of the Romans 11 section. It's Romans 9. <laughs> so Romans 3, 1 through 2. Somebody read that up. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the or- oracles of God. Okay. Okay, so who gave us the scriptures that we're reading right now? The Jews. The Jews. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, and much more besides. I mean, the Jews are how we know God. He picked the Jews out of all the people of the earth, okay? So we come to God through them, all right? Uh, and we get Messiah, right? Through the Jews. What are you saying, Joe? Nope, 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 nope. You're laughing at Stephen? Okay, listen to this guy. Here's the class clown and the, and the curb breaker all at once. Okay, Romans 9, 4 through 5. Somebody read out Romans 9, 4 through 5. We'll get to Romans 9, don't worry. We're not going to spend seven years on it like John Piper did, but we will. At least I don't think we are. It's not my plan. Okay, wait. Okay, here we go. Read it out loud, Catherine. Okay, so again, and this, and then there's more detail there. This is a great, by the way, I was thinking this as I was swimming laps today. Uh, this is a great, these are a great couple passages. So Romans, start of Romans 3, start of Romans 9. Just get that in your can. Great passages if you're speaking. I was today, actually swimming laps. I didn't think about that until, maybe that's why I was thinking about this. But I met a guy named uh, Ido, son, uh, Abel, Hevel. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about Jewish names all of a sudden. Um, he, uh, this is a great, Romans, beginning of Romans 3, beginning of Romans 9, great, two great passages to go to if you're just evangelizing, talking about the Lord, talking about the gospel and God's way of salvation with your Jewish friends. Like, a lot of Jews think that Christianity is anti-Jewish. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Are you kidding me? Like, our Messiah is Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's to the, and, and just take them to this verse, right? It's for the Jew first. It's for the Jew first. We stand on your shoulders like we... Um, we've been grafted in. We can't, and Paul talks much, much more about that later in Romans 9. Okay? Uh, Romans 9 through 11. All right, but here comes the boom. Verse 17. Verse 17 is the boom. So we've already looked at a, a pretty boom verse. This is the gospel's God's power, the, his only power, the power to save for everyone, Jew first and then Gentile. So that's explosive. But then verse 17. This is really the truth that lit a fire in the heart of Europe 500 years ago that has not stopped burning. Uh, it brought the gospel back to the Western church, and it's, it's now spread all over the globe. So, number two, so number one, what was my point? Number one, the gospel is the power of God. But number two, it reveals God's righteousness as nothing else can. Uh, four, okay, four. So somebody read out verse 17 for us. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, thanks, Jordan. So four, there's that four again. So what does this four refer to? The, the gospel. Previous verse. Yeah, the previous verse. That's right. What's come before it, right? So that is, it speaks to how God saves through the gospel. It speaks to how the gospel saves. And how does the gospel save? Connect verse 16 to what Jordan just read. How does the gospel save? What does Paul say? For... It's God's power for salvation for everyone. For, and here's how. 
Sorry? The righteousness will live by faith. Yes, that's true. Exactly. But what's before that? We'll get there. Hmm? Yes, it saves us by revealing to us. And can I say this? Delivering to us. We'll get there. By revealing and delivering unto us God's full and own righteousness. Hey, here's the kicker. Here's what's blowing Paul away. And has been lighting a fire everywhere that it's understood and dropped where the penny drops down into the heart. And that is, it reveals God's full righteousness to us and delivers it to us without destroying us, but rather on the contrary, saving us. It reveals how righteous and perfect God is. And instead of that destroying us, like the sun destroying us and its glory, and the sun isn't even one zillionth as glorious as the living God, who cannot be in the presence of any sin, it reveals his full righteousness to us, the gospel does, the good news of salvation. And that actually saves us through what God has done. And Paul's going to unpack how that happens in the rest of the book. And it's, it, it's amazing. It's, and it's, for, it's foretold in the Old Testament, and it's, and it's foretold in words, and it's foretold in uh, practices, like the, the Old Testament sacrifices and all sorts of things, right? Um, and we're going to get into all that and more. So, the gospel saves by revealing God's righteousness and saving us in the process rather than destroying us. Now, the law reveals God's righteousness, doesn't it? The law is good. The law is God's character. Don't murder. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't bear false witness. And on and on it goes. So many, it's, all, it's all very, very good. But what does the law do? Does the law save us? Entices us to sin. It actually reveals our badness. And, and, and entices us to sin. It shows us how bad we are. It's that, people say, you know, it's like the, the straight edge that shows us our crookedness. You might not know how crooked something is until you put a, a, a ruler up next to it. That's what the law is, and it shows us, the integrity of God shows us how bent and fallen and ruined we are. But it's like, it's like a mirror. It's like it shows us our true selves, but then it doesn't have any, the mirror doesn't have any power to, cha- to change that scar on my face, Right? Um, but it also provokes us to sin. I was, this is in the notes, but Jordan said it. So um, I was at, a, I've shared this before in, 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 in a sermon, but um, I was in an IMAX as a kid. I wasn't too kiddish. I mean, to be honest, I was like maybe early high school or definitely elementary school. I mean, uh, middle school. But I was in the IMAX in the Museum of Natural Science. And there was a little, I was in the top row, and there was a little rail like this high, just high enough for my feet. And it said, it had a sign on it. I had never, didn't notice it. And then I read the sign. The sign said, don't put your feet on this rail. And I was like, what do you, I mean, what do you think? I mean, I, I never would have occurred to me probably, but then I saw the sign and I was enticed to break the rule. And I couldn't, and I couldn't wait to break it. Right. Now, absolutely. Yeah. The law, yeah, and Paul's going to get into that Romans 2, so we'll wait for that, but that's exactly right, very astute of you. Um, If we know the law and we sin, we're even more guilty because we're accountable. We know, you know, I didn't know what it was to covet until the law said don't covet, right? And Paul talks about that, and we'll get get there. Um, But the law isn't bad, it's good, but it it actually, um, it's like when the heat's turned up and the impurities come to the surface, that's, that's one of the things that the law, it shows us are the, the, resi- the resident evil inside of us. Um, okay, 
But the law is a good thing, right? I mean, no law. We've seen in border cities, not border cities, we've seen in like uh, cities on the coasts and other places in the United States that are sort of becoming more and more lawless. What's happening to those places? They're just unraveling. The law, a good law is a good thing, and, and God's law is the best. Um, we, need, we need laws. They restrain our sin, but they also provoke it, all right? Um, but by contrast, the gospel reveals God's righteousness, and rather than condemning us, it saves us. It both reveals God's righteousness and saves us. How? How? Um, let's look at the word reveal. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. How does it do that? It, cannot, it shows that he cannot ignore or dismiss, he cannot not deal with a single solitary sin. Every sin, the gospel shows us that every sin must be accounted for and fully paid for. That's one of the things the gospel shows us, and Paul's going to make that very clear, especially at the end of Romans 3. Um, can I just ask y'all right now, how does the gospel show us that? How does the gospel show us that God has to, every sin must be paid for? How, does, how seriously God takes Law-breaking in sin. How does how does the gospel show us that? Just briefly. The infinitely holy God had to die for it. So it wasn't. He didn't just wave a wand. It shows us other things too. Thank God. But it shows us His righteousness by showing us the lengths He had to go to to forgive us. That the the the, the, pri- the terrible price that had to be paid because God cannot dismiss law breaking and sin. It has to be paid for. And can I just say this? Every law, every bit of law breaking, and every sin and every evil will be paid for to the nth degree. Every single one. God won't let a single one go. The gospel shows us how perfectly righteous God is. He doesn't just go. <coughs> and I'm going to use an illustration in a second to hopefully illustrate that. But um, every sin will be paid for, either by Christ in our place or by us. And that's what hell is. Those who choose to not hide in Christ and not have him pay, not trust in the good news by faith, right? By faith, by faith in the good news. It's mentioned four times faith is in these two verses. Grabbing hold of, receiving with the empty hand of faith, all that God has done for us in Christ. If we don't choose to flee to Christ and to have and to receive his payment for our evil and our sin and our law-breaking, we will pay for every single sin. God cannot let it go because he's good. Not because he's bad, because he's good. The gospel shows us how good he is. So a just judge, he doesn't just, does a just judge just let stuff, like on the earth, I just forget God for a second. I just mean a just judge in a courtroom. Does a just judge let stuff go? I mean, Stephen's a trial attorney. We all know the answer to that, but he might know more than anyone. Would you respect Stephen, uh, a, ju- a judge who uh, just lets small petty crimes and also egregious stuff go? Yeah, why don't you just walk? As a matter of fact, that's not <laughs> Would you be like, if a, if a judge let uh, someone who stole uh, something from an old lady or who, um, or who murdered someone, if he just said, you know what, um, I'm just having a really good day today and I'm feeling kind-hearted, I'm going to let you walk. Would you get warm fuzzies in your heart and go, that's such a loving, good judge? No, quite the opposite. Yeah. Be a terrible judge. You say a lot of things that you're not supposed to say to a judge. Yeah. You have to say them outside. So, Stephen wouldn't respect that judge. We wouldn't respect that judge uh, if he did those things, if he let all sorts of uh, law-breaking go, because his job is to judge fairly, based on the laws that govern the land. And we wouldn't call him 
unloving if he judged justly, would we? We wouldn't call him unloving. What a mean judge. Giving the exact sentences required for each and every person. We would actually call him a good judge if he decided cases in this way. So with God, it's no different. For some reason, we think it is because when we're involved, we want mercy. And because of our perverted understanding of what love is. Um, But we, uh, with God, it's no different. The law in the Old Testament reveals to us the law of the universe, the fabric of how things hold together. They are this way because God is this way. When we break these laws, punishment must be meted out. It has to be executed. We must be punished. God's justice requires it. All right. So look at how many times Paul mentions faith in these two verses that announce the theme of this letter. Verse 16, he says what? To everyone who believes. Verse 17, from faith for faith. Someone mentioned, that's how he closes this verse. And then uh, in verse, well, how he closes it is then he goes from there to say what? In verse 17, the righteous shall live by, by faith. So three times in these two short verses, Paul speaks about faith. Do you think it's central to his understanding of how we're saved? It is. In these key verses, it absolutely is. Um, so when Paul says this, he says, for in it, verse 17, look at verse 17 with me. For in it, the righteousness of God Okay, for in the gospel, that's it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And then he says what? What's the next phrase he says? He says, okay, but right before that, he says, as, as Jordan said, he says, as it is written. So what he's saying there is he's quoting from the Old Testament and he's basically saying, I'm not making this up out of thin air. And this doesn't contradict the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible but is rather stated plainly in the Hebrew Bible. Paul is quoting here from a, a prophet, a minor prophet, Habakkuk. But in chapter 4, he'll go farther back to the law to a more, even more fundamental Jewish event, um, God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. So um, when, when Paul says that the righteous will live by faith, I actually had just, the, some, some translations say the just will live by faith. The righteous or the just will live by faith. It's, it's the translate. Both translations obviously come from the same Greek word and mean the same thing. Righteous means just, and just means right with God. Those who are right with God will live or must live by faith. So why? I want to ask you all, class, why? Why must those who are right with God and right standing with God, why must we live by faith? And of course, Paul goes on to explain this, so it's okay if we don't, we don't know yet. But Without faith, it's impossible to Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11. What else? Keep, keep going. That's right. What else? Why, why must those who are right with God live by faith? Why is that the only way? Again, Paul's going to talk about it. He's going to unpack this and explain it. But. Because God says... Giving yourself over to something you can't see. It's something he believes in faith. In knowing that... And what is it that you're believing? What is it that, that you're believing? That God is, is love, that God is righteousness, that God is love, and that he will save me if I believe in him. That he has provided a way, provided a way the way, for us to be saved through Jesus, right? right. Stephen, what were you going to say? Because Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. That's right. And, and I actually had a whole section explaining that on a word level and then took it out because we're going to get there in Genesis. We're going to get there in uh, Romans 4, which is one of the benefits of, I'm not just preaching a one-off sermon. We're, we're, going, through, we're going through the letter. So we can wait for that. But here in Habakkuk, um, 
Those who are right with God, Paul is saying, those who are just or righteous will live, must live by faith. How, how else could we explain this? Why, why to be right with God must we live by faith? Everything that's been said so far is helpful. Anything um, else? Jordan, do you have something? I have an idea. I don't know if it's right. Um, in the verse from Habakkuk, it starts, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So, yeah, yeah that's is good. There something Context. in uh, living by faith that is the opposite of the sort of spiritual pride that is good. anathema to the kingdom. So, if I, I think that's great. So, one Bible tip there is look at all, I mean, the old, the New Testament writers are always going back to the Old Testament saying, hey, this isn't out of thin air. This is a fulfillment. Everything Jesus has done in Christ is a fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. He's been telling us about it. He's been whispering and then announcing it, through the, shouting about it through the prophets. And now Jesus has come and he's actually fulfilled. And so when, we, when they're quoting from the Old Testament, go back and look at that context. And this really, that really helps. How could that, let's tease that out. So the verse before is, um, the contrast is that um, those who are puffed up are contrasted and, so, and God has no pleasure in them with meek and lowly and those who live by faith. So how, how, if, how if you're, uh, not living by faith uh, to have right. You're trying to have right standing with God and you're not, not living by faith and you're puffed up. What does that, what does that look like? Pride. Yes. But, and it looks like you're but how are you trying to... Looking to something else or yourself uh, or yourself. You're trying to work so up not, your own salvation. Not through to the works that Christ has right. done. I got this, Lord. I can do it. But what is the gospel? Is the gospel saying, I got this, Lord. I can do it? No, no it's a humble posture. It's saying, I can't do it. I deserve what you took on the cross. I can't do it. You did it. That's humility. It's required. That's why, the, as Keller loves saying, the gospel humbles us to the dirt. It, the very gospel means I didn't do this. I did what you took on the cross. That's what I deserve. That's what the thief on the cross said. You, you're not, you don't deserve this, Jesus, but we do. But I believe, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So it humbles us to the dirt, but what else does it do? It lifts us to the stars. Why? And this is outside of our text, but... We have the righteousness of Jesus in us. And we don't deserve it. And look how much he loved us. Look what he's done for us. But look how much... It's how, a song, yeah. not I, but two questions in me. That's it. In me, I think in a, in a nutshell, that's kind of like the whole saying. That is, you're right. It's nothing to do with me at all. I'm just a vessel for him to fill that I... It's not through any, anything good that I've done. Uh, yeah. And how much does that secure us once we believe that? We can't contribute to our own salvation. Retaining my salvation doesn't depend on my faithfulness, but on his, right? Mom, what were you going to say? I was going to say, um, I read a devotional this morning by Dane Ortland, and he said, we can never out-sin. We can never sin more than God's grace. That's right. Than the grace God has for us. The more we sin... The more grace God keeps on us. And, and wait. Yep. And so then. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So that, the point is. <laughs> and as a kid, if I kept going, spank time. So I know to so stop. Our faith, our faith opens up the grace that God has for us when we sin. Because my faith is in what Christ has done for me. So therefore, I get the grace that comes through the cross rather than. Through, you know, because of my faith in what, in what he's done for me. So what's the... Go ahead. When you say, the more I sin, the more grace gives me. Yes. Does that give us... Uh, no. License to sin? <laughs> so, and where does Paul... Paul anticipates... Paul anticipates this perversion of the gospel, right? 
So it's in the book. Where is it in the book? Anyone know what chapter? Romans 6. So he's going to get there. Here's the thing. Let me say this. And then let me say this. And then Arlene, you're next. Um, you, one of the ways you know you've actually explained. By the way, the gospel is a scandal. That word in the Greek is used, scandalon. It is a scandal. It's the opposite of every other mean, means of salvation or religion. Where I do something, I give God something. No. The gospel is, is not that at all. It's that we can do nothing, and so God hung on a cross for us to save us by himself, out of sheer love. Not because of my loveliness, because of his loveliness, and he makes me lovely. Okay, now, that is so scandalous, and one of the ways you know you're rightly explaining the gospel, you may not be, but one of the ways you know that you possibly are, is if someone has the reaction, we know this because Paul actually meets this objection in Romans 6. If someone has the reaction, wait, are you saying I can just live however I want? If somebody asks that question, you know you might be on the right track, right track to explaining how scandalous and free and full the gospel is. Wait, are you, are you saying I can live anyway? Are you saying there's nothing I can do? It's all free? Yes. He's done it all for me? Yes. I can live how I want? No. <laughs> all right? Lee, uh, Leanne, Arlene, tell, tell us <laughs> your um, so question. Does that also say that, the, that people that fully obey the law will be sinless? So, if, Therefore, you know, so if you, and so what does Jesus, what did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? Who's, I think shows up in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What did he say to him? He said, he said, okay, you know the law. He said, how must I, what must I do to be saved? Good, good teacher. And then Jesus takes him to task on good. But then after that, he says, okay, you know the law. And then he says this, that he mentions about five of the laws. And what does the rich young ruler say? Is he like, whoa, I'm a lawbreaker. I, I, need, I, must, I need you to save me. I kept me. them all. No, he said, I kept them all for my youth. And what is Jesus' response? They didn't give away all your money. Yeah. Yes, that, that is true. Um, he does say that. <laughs> I, may be, I may be conflating too, but he says at one point, whether it's to, I, you know what? He, of course he says that. I think it's to a different someone who is trying to, um, he was just trying to establish, the text says he was trying to establish his own righteousness. Yeah. And Jesus says to him, you know the law, uh, and he, he says, what's the greatest? Oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is what it is. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, that's right. Go do that, and you'll live. So the answer is, yes, if we keep the whole law perfectly, we will live. But we can't. But we can't. Right. No, not for a single it's second, impossible. I would argue. Right. It's impossible. Yeah. We can't do it. We don't have, in other words, we are, we don't, if we have our own righteousness perfectly, we will live. But one of the things the gospel shows us is how deeply unrighteous we are. It doesn't just show us how much God loves us. It shows us how deeply broken, not just broken. It's not just a therapeutic healing. It's that we are lawbreakers. At our, we don't just, we aren't just people who sin. We are sinners at heart. Our disposition, because we are born from Adam and Eve, our first parents, who rebelled against God, we were born into rebellion. If, it's easy to explain. If you have kids. <laughs> Enough said. You do, not have, do you have to teach your kids how to be selfish? No. How to grab the toy out of someone's hand and be like, Aah! you know? Aah! I mean, I, I swear, my kids sometimes look like Bilbo Baggins grabbing, you know, give me the ring. <laughs> um, but you have to teach your kids how to share. You have to teach your kids how to share, and it takes like 1,000 times for the first share to happen. And it's like, touchdown dance, it happened. You know, but that's not, our nature is fallen. 
We, that's why Jesus says somewhat strangely at first, but it's actually from the scriptures, from the prophet Ezekiel. But then it makes total sense where there's only one way to be saved. You have to be born a second time. The first, as Sam Albury said, the first time's not good enough. How deeply offensive. The gospel shows us the great love of God, but sometimes I think we have to focus, not, not to the exclusion of that, no way. God, it shows us how much God loves us, but we have to bring in some of this stuff that Paul brings in, which starts next week where he front loads the good news with some seriously bad news. And, man, there's nothing more offensive than saying, the first time you were born was not good enough. That's why Jesus got crucified. Everyone, all the Jews came expecting him to liberate them. And what did he say? His cross basically said, this is how evil you are. So evil that God shows up in your midst and you crucify him. That's how deranged we are. We need a second birth. And only God can do that. And by the way, it wasn't just the Jews, right? It was the Romans and Cahoots. It was everyone. We all, he hung on the cross for my sin. So we're not lampooning the Jews. All right. Um, as always, must speed up. Um, we do want to have a Q&A time. So I'm going to pick and choose here. Because we will get, God willing, through Romans 1 next week. Okay. So, yep. Oh, yeah. So why those, we've said a bunch of good stuff, those right with God must live by faith, will live by faith. How can we be right with God through our own efforts? We can't. It has to be through trusting in the way that God has provided, right? It has to be. Um, Those who are just or righteous are not that way through effort. That's what Paul is going to show us. That's what the gospel teaches us. They are that way through faith. Faith receives all that God is and has done through his son, Jesus Christ, and offers to us freely. We can only be righteous by faith, never by our own works or effort. First, we're considered righteous by God because he counts the righteousness of another, namely, Jesus, as if it were ours. Okay, now, I've got to zoom here, not zoom like that nasty piece of technology that came about during COVID that I don't like that, but I mean, I've got to move. So let me just say a few things about faith. Okay. One of the battle cries of the reformation was sola fide by faith alone. Um, and you really see that here in these key verses in Romans. Um, Paul has already said this in verse 16, the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes you must believe to access that power and have it work for you to put it crudely, but accurately. Um, so Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he, um, he has this famous phrase in the Latin. He says that the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel allows us to be, here's the Latin phrase. If I had a whiteboard, I'd write it up here, uh, up there. The, uh, the gospel means that we are simul justus, simul justus et peccator. Somebody that knows Latin. Okay. Simul, simultaneously. Justus sounds like just, right? Righteous, right? Simultaneously, we are at one and the same time. Simul justus, just or righteous or right with God. Perfectly right with God. Et and? Peccator. Peccator. Peccadillo? Sin. Sin. Okay, we are, the gospel means that we are at once perfectly considered by God as in perfect standing with him. Why? Because we are clothed with the righteousness of another. And I'm going to get this briefly, more briefly than I want to, with an outside righteousness. Theologians refer to it as an 
alien righteousness. We've talked about this, I think, in this class before. An alien. Not, it doesn't mean the saucers, flying saucers. Alien, it means from the outside. With an outside righteousness, that of Jesus, faith receives. It doesn't, it doesn't just mean it receives his payment for your sins, his expiation, his wiping away of your sins. It does mean that. Well, I think that's maybe the first, just like if, if we think, what's the one word that comes to mind when I think of the gospel and what it tells us about God? I would say love. Paul says righteousness. But also, a lot of times I, when I think of the cross, one of the only things I think about or the first thing is it does away with my sin. Jesus nailed my sin to the cross. He became my sin in 2 Corinthians 5.21 on the cross. So that there's no double jeopardy, to use another legal phrase, right? You can't be, God is just, and so because Christ was tried and penalized and punished for your sin, if you trust in him, you will never be punished for that sin. You're free from it. However, that's not all that the gospel means for us. It also means that Christ's righteousness, his perfection, his right and perfect standing before God is yours. It's not just something evil taken away. It's something perfect given to you, pushed into your account. We'll get to this much more in Genesis, in Genesis 4, in Romans 4. With the just shall live by, with Abraham believed God, and God, what, counted it or credited it to him as if it were his righteousness. All right, we'll get to that more. Not today. Um, so this is a courtroom declaration of not guilty. It's, it, theologians call it, they refer to it as a forensic righteousness. Um, it's a status. It's a declaration when you trust in Christ of you are, you have just been moved from guilty to not guilty because Jesus was considered guilty in your place. It's a status. It's a declaration. And that happens instantaneously. The minute someone believes on Jesus, they are considered, they are considered not guilty. They are considered righteous with their own righteousness, their own good works, their own performance, their own law keeping. No, that of Jesus, right? That of Jesus. So it's not a moral, it is not a moral transformation. That does come. You will be truly transformed by degrees into the image of Christ over the course of your life and then one day when you see him face to face perfectly. But that's not what this term means. That's not what Paul's talking about. You will be considered instantaneously just or righteous or in perfect standing with God the minute you look to Jesus with a forensic declaration of not guilty because he was guilty in your place. It's conferred upon you. Does that work itself out by faith also? From faith to faith? A life of faith? Of course. Is that life of faith and that working it out any less from Jesus than your declaration of not guilty? Of course not. Everything that a believer has, the doing away of sin, the declaration of not guilty, the actually becoming more and more and more lovely, it's all from Jesus. It's all because, here, get this, it's all because faith weds us, unites us, rivets us to Jesus Christ. You'll never be separated from him. He would have to deny himself. That's, that's the biblical reality and language that we're given. It's that strong. He will never divorce you. Ever. You're secure. The freedom and the joy that come out of that realization, that's the Christian life. As you know him more and more in his loveliness and goodness and beauty. Not, oh, okay, I'm saved. Now I'm going to try to do good works. No, it's because you're a fully, what did Jesus do? What did God do 
Jesus is God. What did he do in Exodus 20 when he gave the law in Exodus 20 to his people on Mount Sinai? Did he say, okay, I brought you out of Egypt. Did he say, okay, look, you're this people, you're still on trial. If you obey these laws, these 10 things and these 600 other things, 602 other, th- three other things, then I'll take you to myself. No, how did he start? Right before he gives the 10 laws, what does he say? What's the short preamble? I know John knows. You are my treasured possession. Okay, so he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then, and he's telling them, I saved you. I am the God who saved you even when you were slaves and you were idolaters for 400 years and you had forgotten me. I am your God, not because of your goodness, but because I'm good, because I'm a covenant God, because I told, I gave a promise to Abraham and I've chosen you because of my great love for you, because I'm lovely. And I've saved you through no good of your own. Now, live this way, because it's for your blessing. He doesn't, it's, it's, it's no different with us. Christ just brings us fully into that. He saves us without any strings attached and says, I love you. I've saved you fully. Now, live as mine. Live as sons of the Father that you are. Live as full heirs. And when you sin, you have an advocate before God, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, I need to close so that we can do, um, so that we can do uh, questions. Let me see what's tasty in here, that there's so much tasty, but um, that I want to share as we close. The righteous shall live by faith is point three. We've talked about that some. Let me just say this. Faith is not, uh, it's not a work. Let's take a couple more minutes and say this and then close down. Faith is not a work. It's not like, so the emphasis isn't on like, man, I hope the quality of my faith is enough. I hope I have enough faith. My quality is enough. My quantity is enough. Faith, think about faith as the opposite of work. Sort of like what Jordan was saying earlier about the just shall live by faith is contrasted with the verse before where it says the spiritually puffed up, the one who God does not have any pleasure in, right? Who thinks, basically, who thinks I I can get to God. I can measure up to God. I can do enough good stuff. The one who has faith says what? I can't. I can't do enough good stuff. I'm a lawbreaker. You're a covenant God. You've, you must consider me righteous with a righteousness not my own because of your goodness and your promise and your faithfulness. And Jesus brings us into the full understanding of what that looks like as we look to him on his cross, as we look to his life counting for us. His full life of obedience counts for you the minute you trust in him. And his full death on the cross wipes away all of your sin. And his full sonship, you're encased in that as you're united to him and you're brought into with his status into the family of God forever. Um, faith is the opposite of work. It's, it's believing in his work, not your own. It's the anti-work. It's saying, I can't do it, God, you've done it. It's to believe Jesus when he said in his final breaths on the cross, it is finished. Okay, then what happened after this? I love how Keller says this. He's, um, what did God do right after that statement when Jesus said, it is finished, and he breathed his final breath, and he died, and he said, Father, into, my hands, into your hands I commit my spirit. To show, Keller says, to show that Christ's death for us, his payment for us, his payment for us. He didn't die for him, he died for you. He didn't pay for his sin, he paid for your sin. And what happened right after that to show that it worked, is the word Keller uses, that his death worked for you. What happened? 
The veil. The veil that separated God's presence with his people, the most exclusive place on earth, where only one person from one tribe, from one nation, once a year, exactly according to God's word, could go. And if he didn't do it exactly according to God's word, he, he died. What happened to that veil? The minute Jesus breathed his last, it ripped from top to bottom. It was like a wall. It was a super thick veil. And what was God saying? Theologize. Unpack that. What was he saying when he ripped that veil when Jesus Christ died? The barrier is separating God from the end. All comers welcome. All. To everyone who believes. But you have to believe through Jesus. Through the torn one. Man didn't. Um, rip no, man didn't. It ripped from top yeah. to bottom. Nobody could have read The most exclusive thing. God in his full righteousness, the maker of the stars, the maker of every cell in your body, of your very soul, that is perfectly righteous, that we're totally unrighteous. The minute Jesus died, he said, anyone can come to me now on the face of the earth, but you have to come through Jesus. He's made an open way. It's like a laser. Jesus is like a laser that bores a hole through all the most exclusive dividers right into the very presence of God. That's why we can call God Daddy in Jesus' name alone. Jump up into his lap, and he's our father. And he heals our daddy wounds. Imperfectly here, because we're imperfect, but by degrees, and then one day face-to-face, he'll wipe away all our tears. All right, so there's a lot more good here. I'm going to stop here, and I may mention some of this next time. There's a lot of good application, too, but I need to stop. So, yes, 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 yes. Oh, one more point? I don't know. There's so much here. Oh, ha ha. All right. Um, so let me, let me close this in prayer, and then we'll have a Q&A time. All right. We got 20 minutes. Yes. So, Lord, thank you so much that, uh, first of all, that uh, we can, we're just going to, we're walking through this book. You're the one in charge. You're sovereign. You've appointed for us to be here. You've appointed this time. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've totally effected our full and free salvation, Jesus, by paying the ultimate price. So we get to, you know, next week we can just keep going. And hopefully we get to the end of the chapter. Lord, you've, you've given us this amazing, at the cost of so many lives, uh, so much linguistic and textual expertise, you've given us this amazing treasure, your word, and shown us all that you've done to save us, this free and full salvation that you've accomplished in your son, Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of coming together above ground and getting to dwell on it, to talk about it, to discuss it, to ask questions, to, to, to marvel at your beauty, at your righteousness, at how the gospel shows us how perfect you are, how inflexible when it comes to sin. You cannot Put up with it, it must be punished, and you punished it in Jesus. Would we flee to him again today? Would we, would we cause others to flee to him and to say, get thee to Jesus? He is the only way to be saved, and everyone can be saved through faith in him. So we bless you tonight, Lord. Would you continue to get glory in our lives, and even this week as we go out from here on this Monday night, would you bless every single person and family here, and would you continue to, to grow us, so that many more people might be encouraged in you and come to know you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we are going to include the Q&A time in this uh, recording because that's always the best time. So 
we may or may not pick up with some of the leftovers um, next week from this week, but let's uh, open it up. We've already had some good questions. Yep. So I'm going to go back to where you started. And you said, well, because it makes so much perfect sense, right, that we're talking about salvation is free. There's nothing we can do, absolutely nothing. Except believe on Christ, right? Right. The anti-work. Why do we have such a hard time convincing of other people that simple truth? Mm. Okay, great question. That's a great question. Right. Why do we have... Because we can't, we can't minister, we can't spread our, our, our joy for that free gift. Okay, so why do we have so much trouble? So there's another extension. Okay. Sorry. I need to bring a notepad next time so I can... I don't, I don't know why I think I told you that yeah, yeah, yeah. at a party where I met Robert Sackowitz. These guys are too young oh, yeah. to know what that store is. But there's a fancy store called Sackowitz. Yes, there was. Remember that. And I met Robert Sackowitz, the son of the dad. And he's a super interesting guy. And uh, we met him again for another dinner, and I was bold enough to say, so super knowledgeable about God and the law. And I said, so he's quite Jewish, right? Super. And I I was just really bold, and I said, hey, so just kind of curious, just because you really know the law. You know God. I'm I'm just wondering, because you, you, you so easily can be convinced of understanding why Jesus came. Hmm. Because well, Jesus, there's no defining that Jesus was a prophet. But we are his people. So he came for others. He didn't have to come for us. Oh, oh, wow. That was like, wow. There was almost nothing Dang. Insane, I thought. Wow. You could just take him to the Old Testament, like the entire thing. <laughs> Israel does not come, and all, come off smelling like a rose in the Old Testament. It's like, if the Old Testament tells us anything, it indicts Israel as a sinful, yeah. rebellious people. Who desperately need a savior. There's no other, by the way, you read the cognate literature, there's no other ancient Near Eastern history that's that much of an expose. Every history in the ancient Near East, and we're going to come back to your awesome question, is basically touting that, how, the awesomeness of that ancient people. Because the history was written by kings up until recently. And the kings are like, even they, they exaggerate their, their victories and their virtues and the virtues of their people and the gods love us and blah, 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 blah. And the, in the Old Testament, it's the opposite, right? It's the exact opposite. God goes out of his way to show you. He's, at one point, he's like, I did not choose you just in case you're wondering, Israel, because you're getting a little proud of yourself. I didn't choose you because of how awesome you are. In fact, what did he say? I chose you because of how small and insignificant and horrible and sinful and rebellious and hard-headed you are. That, and, and by the way, that's us. So don't get, they'll be like, well, we're not as bad. As, no, as that, we, we are the Israel of God. You know? <laughs> well, even, even when he chose Abraham, you were the least of the people. Ab- Abraham was in Ur worshiping the moon god Nana when God called him out of Ur. All the moon worshippers out there, you yeah. were yeah. the least of them. Yeah, that's right. And I'm the one telling you moon worshippers are nothing. Right. And you were the least of the moon worshippers. And yet, Abraham. You were going to be a blessing to the rest that's of the right. world. Not that you end up yourself are the blessing. And he believed God. He was a man of faith. And, and he believed, because he believed that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. Is it any different with us? Because he, he believed in God's promise and in God's word, which is Jesus. God, you're going to do, you're capable of doing what you say you're going to do. God considered that to him as if it were his own righteousness and it was the righteousness of God. That same, same way that we're saying, that's what Paul says here. And we'll get into that more in Romans uh, 4. But hang, hang on real quick, because I want to, uh, 
Arlene had that great thing about Sackowitz, but then she said at the beginning, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, why, um, why do people, and I want to open this up to the class because it's a great question, why do people have such a hard time being convinced that the gospel, God's only way of salvation, there's no second way that the gospel is free. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Why do people have such a hard time believing that? Being convinced of that. Is that your question? Right? Okay, so. Family and friends. Yeah, why? Why do people have such a hard time accepting that? Why? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people inherit. So we're cynical. Our, our spirit, and the whole concept of faith and believing in something that you can't see, can't look at pictures of. There's there's no concrete anything. Now there is, but in their mind it's a book. It's not a historical entity. Well, there's plenty, but the, it is the Bible is an account of, of of God intervening with a people in space and time. That's why archaeology is always the friend of the Bible. Right. Never has the Bible been disproved. The only thing that archaeologists have against the Bible is, oh, we don't we don't have any record of that. And then and invariably, what happens is, ten years later, hundred years later, they go, oh, we oh we did we just uh, we just dug up that thing that only the Bible ever mentioned people, people, people happened again. The same thing, I think the same thing too when you Wait, so the people of today don't things like you know I trust in you, right? You you do what you're going to say. Where is that today? When you look around, at what is happening in our world today? People. So God, can we really can we really believe that you are going to be true to your word and that you right, this gospel right. really because is going to save who, me? Who all has been true to the word? Because we've been ruled. So there's some of that. There's some of, hey, it's too good to be true. And what else? There's other things, too, that I'm thinking of. They don't want to give over control of their lives. Okay. Because what does the gospel require? It's free, but it requires all of us. What does Jesus say? You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple unless you forfeit your life, unless you pick up your cross and follow me. Right. You know, if, if you love anything more than me, if you don't forfeit everything, if you think that you own a single thing, and don't give it all to me. You cannot be my disciple. You're not worthy of me. The call, the call is so high. And doesn't that a mark of his genuineness? If God called us to himself and gave his life for us, didn't it make sense that he would? And of course, his, in his service is perfect freedom. How's, if you're, if you're serve, trying to serve or find happiness in anything else, how's that working out for you? God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. So there's perfect freedom in that. But the call is, and people don't want to, People want to have a perceived sense of control over their lives. They don't actually control. But they're scared of that. I can, I can see that in a number of my friends that mm-hmm. don't want to bow the knee and surrender to the gospel. What else? What else? Let's keep... Let's... The idea, concept of suffering. When you understand that suffering, growth happens through suffering. Suffering can be a good, positive thing. What doesn't kill you makes you better. All of those little sayings... And, and, the, and as the Bible said, you know, you, if you can follow me, pick up the cross. But that doesn't, that's true, but it doesn't get back to, if we stay on the, on the question, that is true. Why is it so hard to convince people that the gospel is free? Again, back to that. And that, Rachel, I feel like you were going to say something. I think most people believe they're fundamentally good. Okay. Like, okay yeah. enough. Okay. Because one of the gospel things, one of the things the gospel shows us, we get back to Paul's thesis here, right, is how desperately wicked I am. 
It required, my salvation required, it wasn't God just going, I love you, you're, you're, you're good. I say, I'm going to save you now. It was him, he, 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 he created all things in six days with his word. No problem. No sweat. Literally, he rested on the seventh, no sweat. But he had to be, in a sense, eternally damned. He had to take our damnation upon himself. He became sin. He took the wrath of God on himself to save us. That's how serious our sin is. And people don't, the gospel is an indictment of our condition. And people don't want to admit that. They want to face that. They want to hold on to a shred of, I can do this. There's that pride, like Jordan pointed out in Habakkuk 2 verse 3. Go go ahead, Stephen. Well, I I think it's also, when you talk about justification, you weren't using the words justification and sanctification. Right, right, right. Talk about justification. We also have to remember that like, what you are you are sealed by that justification, but you are sealed for a time of judgment. It's not we think in our temporal time of I haven't done anything that bad. We don't see things in relation of the Almighty, you know, infinite, eternal God. When you're gonna stand before him in judgment, that's a time in the future. You're sealed in justification now for when you appear before him. But if you see things in that perspective, Versus your temporal, but this is me now. I haven't done anything all that bad in my life. Compared to this guy. Yeah, there's yeah. an awfully big difference when you're the only guy standing there. Right. And yeah, and you can't hide. There's this great, this is great. I've been sealed, I've been justified, and I'm looking at infinitely the holy God, and there is nothing else to compare it to but me. I remember, and I've said this before um, in, in sermons past, but there was this time at Bally's. Remember Bally's Presidential Fitness? Remember that? You old, anyone old enough to remember that gym, Bally's? Okay. Yes. There's a, in North Carolina and Charlotte, most of y'all are babes. You're babes. No, You're like a, no, 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 no. And I was there in Charlotte, and I remember there's this huge muscled-up li- weightlifter that made me look like a noodle. And I look like a noodle anyway, but I really look like a noodle compared to him. And I have this bad habit of asking jacked guys to give me weight, weightlifting tips. I'm going to ask Pavel sometime. And, uh, Did you call him a beefcake? <laughs> beefcake, yeah, meathead. Uh, no, I didn't. He would have broken me like a twig. And anyway, I was like on the bench and I stood up and I, and no, no, I didn't stand up. I was on the bench and I go, sir, could you um, give me just one, just one tip? One tip. And he goes, stand up. And I was like, oh boy, wrong question. So I stood up and I just felt naked. And he looked at, I wasn't naked. And he looked at me up and down and was just like this, just huge. He clearly knew what he was doing. He spent his whole life probably weightlifting. And I could tell he was examining me with this critical, like, not critical bad, but with a, an expert eye. With an expert eye going, okay, where are these guys' deficiencies? Where do you need to work? And I felt totally exposed. I just wanted to like, eh, you know? And, uh, and he was like, okay, you need to work on your legs and your core or whatever. You're real vascular. He said some of that. But um, my point is, I don't know what I would do with somebody. it reminds me of, see, he's basically like, you're all nerves. You have no muscle. But he, uh, I felt exposed before this guy. He was just a strong dude. How exposed are we going to feel before the living God who sees straight to the heart? And C.S. Lewis has this wonderful quote from Dogma in the Universe, an essay, just about how nothing can hide. No, no cops, it's a very British word, no forest, no, no amount of charade. Nothing will be able to, it, on that day when we stand before the living God, it's going to be like it's just him and me and nothing else in the universe, like Stephen said. And that will be the reckoning. And if Christ's perfect righteousness doesn't cover you by faith, you will fail miserably forever. But if it does, you will stand in the congregation of the righteous. 
as the psalm, as the first psalm in the Psalter ends. You will stand in the congregation of the righteous because you are covered in Christ by faith. Received by faith. Somebody else is going to say something, Mom. And then I want to honor y'all's time. We have about five more minutes. This is easy because you can answer it really fast. Oh, sure. Set me up for failure. (laughs) Verse 17, it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So if if you're talking, I'm talking to an unbeliever or an atheist or whatever, how would you explain to them in layman's terms the the righteousness of God? I would go to everything that follows this verse. So literally next week, Paul, in the ne- he wastes no time. He sets out his thesis. So I'm making a stump speech for come back next week. Literally, after he sets out his thesis, we just looked at the intro. These two verses are his thesis verses where I'm going to demonstrate and argue this like a, like a lawyer in a court of law before the living God, that the gospel shows us the righteousness of God. He then in verse 18 proceeds formally in his argument to show us how. How the gospel shows us God's perfect righteousness and how, and how, I'm giving a bit away, up until 3, verse 21, all the way until from 118 to 320, he shows us and how God's righteousness outside of the intervention of Jesus Christ absolutely damns us to perfect judgment. Every single Jew and Gentile on the face of planet Earth. There is no escape. But there is, then he brings in an escape hatch in 321. I'm getting ahead of myself. So mom, I would say, have them read the first three chapters of Romans. Read it with them. Do a Bible study or just say, can I just, and hopefully after this, I mean, you've been walking with the Lord for, we won't say how many years, but a lot of years. You're a mature saint. And, uh, and, and yet, maybe at the end of, our, in another about six weeks, having walked through Romans 3 together, you'll be able, with a little, even more confidence, to be able to go, okay, let's sit down and let's walk through this, let's walk through these, these chapters. Because Paul, nobody does it better than Paul here. No one. Yeah. I was going to ask, uh, righteous from faith for faith. Yeah, yeah, we're getting to that. Versus yes. what people often quoted as, yes. righteous from faith to faith. Ah, Distinction. Okay, the 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 um, prepositions are tricky. They can be they can be variously interpreted, which is why you have some of those different translations. The phrase itself is a it's not a conundrum, but it is opaque enough that there's a lot of ink spilled on what does this mean. I think that I have a decent handle on it, and a lot of that's because I've read the commentaries I trust, and I've and if you look at some of the context. I think the best indicator, and we're going to get to this next week, so literally I was about to say, one thing that I will touch on before we jump into Roman, to the end of chapter 1 next week is, I will do, uh, as it is written, uh, uh, what is it, I just better read it. He says, he says, is revealed from faith for faith, the phrase you just said, we will touch on that, and then as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But I definitely want to touch on that phrase because it's, it's a tricky one, but I think that the best, I'll just, I'll just give the teaser, the best way for us to understand really what that phrase means is what comes right after it. Because context is the king for understanding what something means is what are the words around it say. So I literally think he goes in to explain himself. It's revealed from faith for faith. As it is written. Now he's going to explain what that means. The righteous shall live. Here's the key. They shall live by faith. Not just come to Christ, believe on him, and then try to behave. 
That is, or come to Christ, believe on him, and then live however you want to. Paul addressed that in Romans 6. He's saying, no, rather, it's the entire life of the, second, of the person born a second time by faith in Jesus is one of faith. It never stops being of faith. It doesn't start being works once you're like received by God and your sin's cleared. It doesn't ever, it's all out of Christ by faith in him and what he's done for you. So, so we're going to get, so I think he's actually explaining what from faith forth faith means. I'll get into more of that next week for sure. Um, and then we'll move on into 18 and following. Um, but it, it's, a, it's an awesome, it's an awesome phrase. Okay. I, I literally have, it's a murky phrase. Here's my best guess in the notes. So we'll, we'll get to that right away next week. And then we'll hit a couple other things and um, I'll hit, I'll hit some application and then we'll jump into 118 and following. Um, we, we, we are, we are done. It's nine sharp. I know y'all need to go. Is there any other literally like very short burning question that you want to ask on the recording? Just a comment on, okay. the, uh, on the religions that work so hard at, at being good all the time. And it's so sad to you know that they don't understand the freedom that is right. interesting. And Paul talks in Romans 10. He'll, we'll get there. He talks in Romans 10 expressly about that. How are they to... Believe unless they hear, and how do they hear? How are they to hear unless someone tells them? And how is someone to tell them unless that person is sent? As it is written, how blessed are the feet of him who brings good. So that is one of the great impetuses for us to go. Christians are those who we sing, as we said yesterday at the prayer meeting, and we go. We're constantly going, even if it's across the street. We are we are an outward going people as Christ's arms were stretched out. So we go out and tell those that don't know. Um, that's right. Let me close. Lord, thank you so much for this precious people. Lord, thank you that you bought them with your precious blood that cleanses from all sin, that you've given us your righteousness, your very righteousness. What confidence we have. Not in our own feelings. Man, sometimes I feel my own sin so keenly. I don't stand on that. Sometimes I, 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 all the time I sin and sometimes I, I fall back into sin patterns. I don't stand on that. I stand on the declaration of your perfect righteousness given me and received by faith. And that is what we stand on. And I thank you that the gospel shows us that righteousness in, in, uh, in, in technicolor. And, and that it saves us. It doesn't damn us. It saves us because of Jesus. So we, we lift your name high tonight. We say, come Holy Spirit, even as we leave, would you protect us and keep us? Would you help us to do good work this week and worship even as we do so? And come back here next week rejoicing and ready for, ready, uh, for the rest of the chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.